You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 80. the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Phil Johnston, who is a wildlife tracker and a field biologist working with the elusive Pacific Fisher. Phil and I had a great conversation that included his thoughts on how wildlife tracking has influenced his work as a biologist as well as how illegal marijuana grow sites are decimating Pacific fisher populations. We're super excited to be collaborating with Phil on an ongoing video project about Pacific fisher research and the impact of rodenticide from illegal marijuana grow sites on this species. Let's jump into the conversation and see what Phil has to say. My name's Phil Johnson, and I'm the lead technician on the Hoopa Fisher Project on the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation in Humboldt County in Northern California. And uh, the study's been going on intensively since 2005, but it started in the 90s. And um, there there was a marked decline between 1998 and 2005 in fishers, but now we've got, we've had fishers continuously radio collared since 2005. And Right now, we've got 19 individuals with uh, working radio collars out there. And the goals of the study are basically to assess the demography of the fishers to see how their population is doing. And that's really important to the Hoopa tribe because the, uh, the Pacific fisher is an important species for them. They're used in their ceremonial regalia. And um, they're threatened, obviously, by logging practices and the Hoopa people made the decision that it was important to them to study fishers to make sure that the way that we are logging out there is not negatively affecting them because the Hoopa tribe is a timber tribe and that's where most of their um, finances come from. How did you get involved in this project, uh, working with the Pacific fisher? Uh, you know, was there anything in particular that, that drew you in to work with this species? Well, I actually came out there for a, a field trip um, when I was a student in a mammals management class at HSU, and I got to meet Mark Higley, the lead biologist there, and he is such a he has such a passion for ecology and just has such a great vision of the entire landscape and knows that area so well. And uh, we got to spend the day out with him, and he showed people. Um, all the studies he's been working on, because there's been bears and spotted owl studies and um, the Fisher study, obviously, and a pileated woodpecker study. And he just had this beautiful, grand ecological vision and understanding of the landscape that was just totally inspiring to me. And um, at the end of the day, I guess my the teacher had me teach part of the day of tracking, because that's where I come from. A, I'm a professional wildlife tracker, so interpreting and following animal footprints and signs on the landscape. So she had me teach that part. And, uh, you know, Mark came up to me afterwards and, you know, said it'd be great to have me on. And he appreciated how I was able to uh, engage the class. And that was like a dream come true to me. I was like, please. (laughs) 
Very cool. Yeah. I, I do want to get into sort of some of a, a little bit more information about your your background as a, a wildlife tracker because that's sounds super fascinating to me. But sure. um, maybe first we can just talk a little bit about the habitat and and the ecosystem in this area where you're working on the Hoopa Reservation. Uh, I mean, sort of set the stage for us. What, what's it like out there? It is incredibly rugged. Um, it's mountainous. The valley floor is at about 300 feet. And uh, the highest point on the reservation is just over 5,000 feet. So there's big elevation changes. It is incredibly steep. The landscape is, you know, mostly forested, almost entirely forested. And uh, the dominant species, tree species, are Douglas fir and tan oak. Um, and Douglas fir, I mean, there's still a, quite a bit of really good old growth habitat in Hoopa, which is why so many of these species like fishers and pileated woodpeckers and bears are just ridiculously abundant. Um, so the landscape, just imagine, you know, very steep mountains, very steep. Lots of it, um, you know, is almost dangerous to walk down <laughs> and very, very brushy in parts too. In general, the reservation is split in half by the Trinity River and runs north to south. And on the west side, it's a lot more wet. It's kind of not as steep and generally is more kind of moist and um, damper forest. So there's there's a lot of really thick, lush vegetation on the west side. And on the east side of the Trinity River, it's a little bit drier and it's a little bit steeper. Um, and then we have the really high elevation stuff over there. So the 5,000 feet, um, that's over on the east side. And uh, Parts of it are nearly impossible to walk through. Um, we all who work out there have a saying, huckleberry hell, and that's referring to the dense thickets of evergreen huckleberry, which you can only get through by crawling <laughs> or macheteing. So it's um, it's a fun place to work. It's incredibly beautiful, but um, yeah, it can take you three hours to go a hundred meters down in some of these drainages and the fishers love that. Um, that's the kind of habitat that these fishers love. So, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the Pacific fisher. Well, you know, the fisher is fascinating because everybody knows what a bobcat is, right? Or a fox. Everybody has heard that, you know, but 90% of even people at Humboldt state, um, in the sciences, natural resources programs, you say a fisher, and they think you're talking about a human fisherman, you know, or a kingfisher, the bird. They don't know what this creature is, you know, and they know what a marten is, right? But they don't know what a fisher is. So I don't know why it's like this culturally, but across the United States, I mean, I think they're a little bit more notorious in the Northeast because they're just more common there. But um, out here in the West, especially, this the fisher is just like this elusive creature that like almost no one has even heard of. Um but the fisher is an arboreal weasel in the weasel family, so it's a, a mustelid, but it's one of the larger ones, and it's actually related to a wolverine most closely. Um, but they're longer and slighter than a wolverine. They're more narrow. They have a really long tail, and they're, they're kind of brown, you know, almost like an otter, but they're, they're up in the trees. They're about, you know, three, four feet long, and... Um, so they're extremely sexually dimorphic as well, which means the feel, the females and males are different in size. And the males can weigh, you know, five or six kilos, whereas the females usually weigh two, 2.3, maybe to three kilos. Um, and they are just like 
like most things in the muscle family, they are have a really high metabolic rate, so they are just going and going. And fishers need to eat a third of their weight in food every day um, just because to sustain this high metabolic rate. And when you see them in the woods, it's like they are just cranked up. It's a, you know, they, they will sprint circles around trees, you know, just clinging to the bark. And they're incredibly good at climbing. They have modified joints in their hind feet so they can turn their feet around 180 degrees and literally sprint head first down, you know, a big old tree trunk of a dug fir. So they're carnivores as well, and they, they prey a lot here on wood rats and, and squirrels. And um, flying squirrels is a big prey item, but I think it's mostly seems to be wood rats. They also are omnivorous, and they'll eat berries. I find a lot of their scats with um, salal berries and manzanita and huckleberry. So, And you know, occasionally they'll eat other vegetation too, but it seems to be mostly berries and um, meat. So uh, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your, your background as a wildlife tracker. Um, and, you know, maybe sort of connecting that specifically to this work you're doing now with Fisher. I mean, does this background, I, I, I would think that that informs uh, uh, the work you're doing in maybe a unique way, maybe a little bit of a different way than, you know, somebody who's coming from a more traditional sort of biology or animal behavior background. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that it does, you know, and um, many biologists who spend, you know, their their lives in the woods, you know, end up having a lot of these same kind of tracking skills, um, but not necessarily. And in fact, there have been tons of studies where basically biologists assumed because they have a degree in their biologist that they can interpret wildlife tracks and sign. And, um, like there was a study on otters down in Texas where they were identifying otter tracks and it was like a 10 year study and they spent $8 million on it. And then when some professional trackers who I know who went through this data to check if they were identifying things correctly, found that they were wrong way more often than they were right. (laughs) So they threw away all that data and that's just been a really common thing in my experience, you know, and it is very frustrating because I don't want to go to an esteemed biologist and say, well, I know I don't have a PhD, but I can assure you that there's tracks and sign and scat of this species in this area. And, you know, people necessarily, you know, they kind of think that just because they have a PhD, they know better. Um, But so that's kind of been one of my passions is getting tracking to be more accepted in the scientific field as a as a really valuable um, tool, basically. And it is, you know, because. For example, like I had a, this this year, we had Fisher Den season this year when they give birth, and they give birth in trees, um, in tree cavities. So we had a Fisher who just stopped denning. You know, no, we had no idea why. I climbed into her tree, went up to her tree, and saw that there were bear tracks and bear sign around, and that it had climbed the tree, torn open into the cavity from the back, and actually eaten her kits which has never been documented before. And um, I collected hair samples from that. So hopefully we're going to get DNA to prove it, um, you know. But that was something that I don't think you would have noticed, that we would have been aware that a bear predated a fisher den. I don't think that we would have been aware of that if I hadn't been looking at it through the lens of a tracker. So my background with it, that was that's just my passion, you know, 
wandering in the woods and tracking is, is like reading the stories of wildlife. You know, my favorite thing is just to watch an animal and get a, get a glimpse into their life. Right. You know, but how often can you just go watch a mountain lion or a fisher or a bear as it goes about its business in the day? I mean, it's very difficult. It can happen sometimes, but for the most part, you can't do that. So, but tracking allows you to follow the animal and you can see like what it did throughout the day, everywhere, where it rested, where it drank, where it defecated, where it marked its territory and where it made a kill. And um, at a certain point, after years and years of working with tracking and interpreting the gates of animals and the feet placement, you can really start to visualize the animal. You know, you can see, oh, when it puts its foot right here, it looked back over its shoulder and then it stopped and scratched its ear. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but I mean, it's not this mysterious, like fantastical thing that people kind of sometimes associate tracking with. It's really very practical and scientific. And uh, I try to share that with people because there are some schools of thought out there where people like to kind of manipulate people by being the mysterious tracker, you know, <laughs> and, um, I'm very much not, not a fan of that. I like to show people that it's something practical that everyone can do. And it just takes a little bit of time and dedication. How did you get interested in tracking? Uh, where did this, uh, uh, interest of yours come from? <laughs> well, it, it came most directly from, from a guy that I met, um, when I went, I moved to Washington to be, a a farmhand at a permaculture wilderness school up there. I wanted to learn about permaculture farming and sustainability. And uh, so I moved up to this school called Alderleaf Wilderness College, which, by the way, is a fantastic place for anyone who wants to get into wilderness skills or tracking or permaculture. But up there, um, I met this guy who was the land steward there, and he just took me down to a river bar one day and uh, pointed out, you know, some bobcat tracks and some beaver tracks. And we followed the bobcat a little ways. And it just instantly blew my mind. You know, immediately, I was like, holy, holy crap, you can do this, you can see an animal's life through its tracks, you know. And it's funny, because that had just never occurred to me before, you know. <laughs> and I think it doesn't to a lot of people, you know, they call it and like trackers, you know, call it being track blind, you know. A lot of people will walk by and never, ever look at tracks, ever, and walk right past them. Super obvious ones. Um, and uh, I definitely was, too. You know, I would always love to go wander in the woods. That was, like, what I did when I was a, a, a teenager and a kid, you know, just wandering, going walking. You know, I'd follow game trails, but I didn't know there were, you know, there were tracks. I wasn't seeing tracks. I wasn't seeing scat. I wasn't seeing sign on trees or anything. And, uh, but yeah, as soon as I got that one introduction to it, I was, I was hooked and, uh, started going out alone. You know, I had a pretty good education from Alderleaf. They gave you the basics, um, of, you know, track and sign identification. And then I moved away from there after, uh, living there for a year and basically spent two years going to community college and working for fish and game, um, and just tracking all the time on my own, going to the same spot every day, tracking the same animals, this one bobcat that I always tracked and, you know, just journaling tracks. Like I drew the tracks of everything that I found. I would sit down and draw them for two hours and, and journal the gates and journal what they were doing and journal where they bedded. And I just, have, you know, I have notebooks filled with all this stuff. And, um, 
it was it was really fun. <laughs> it was just a great time learning all that stuff. And now, now when I walk through the woods, um, you know, I can kind of glance around and just interpret and infer the presence of a ton of species. You know, you walk by, oh, there's a buck rub. Oh, there's there's a harvest mouse cache. You know, there's a uh, flying squirrel dig where it dug up a morel, you know, oh, and there's a mountain lion scrape. Um, it's just surprising, you know, you can walk through the woods and just by being a little bit observant and knowing what to look for, you can infer the presence and activities of so many species. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And I, I really have enjoyed sharing it with people. Um, and yeah, I hope to do more of that. I actually want to get kind of more of a teaching element going. I am one of those people that, that, like you said, that probably walks right past prints, you know, and, and, and all this sign of animals and is oblivious to 90% of it, you know, <laughs> but like, I can totally imagine just, you know, listening to you talk about how that could sort of elevate, you know, uh, uh, your, your perception of an ecosystem to, to a higher level and, and, and be really fascinating. Um, so I, I'm curious you know, with this work that you're doing with the Pacific Fishers, there's definitely a connection there, right? Um, I mean, it's almost like you're taking uh, uh, these tracking skills and like sort of even heightening it to another level, at least with the fishers specifically, because you're putting uh, radio transmitters on them, right? So now you can track their movement even when you can't see um, their prints. I had done radio telemetry before, but not to the extent that I, I do it with fishers. Basically, what I'd used it for before was um, locating collared deer who had died um, in the Mendocino National Forest. I helped with a deer and mountain lion study there. And um, that was very different because this deer is dead, right? It's not moving. All I have to do is walk in and find it. <laughs> you know? So there was the triangulation and that stuff. And I felt, you know, okay at telemetry. But, um, Doing radio telemetry on fishers and hoopa is probably the hardest telemetry there is to do in the world because these animals are in mountains very deep down, you know, deep in drainages and in tree cavities. And the signal coming out from the collar is is a wave. It's a radio wave. And it bounces off of all these rocks and everything. And, you know, you'll hear, hear a lot of biologists say telemetry is an art form, and I think that that's really true. Um because you have to you have to get to know the beep of the signal it's 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 hard to explain but there's there's just such subtlety to the tone that'll tell you okay that's bounce you know okay nope that's a direct signal and i've got a a good straight shot of this animal and this bearing that i take is going to be true um so it was really interesting to start doing it in hoopa because Mostly, I'm working with the same animals, you know, for years. You know, we have we'll have the same fisher collared for years, and it's really cool to get to see them using the same habitat or shifting their home range seasonally or overlapping with others. You know, um, sometimes I'll have two fishers radio collared, and they'll be 50 meters apart from each other, but both asleep in different trees. You know, and um, it takes a while to get the hang of telemetry, but you you can start to know from the tone of the signal if the animal is sleeping or if it's moving. You know, if it's moving, the signal will be fading in and out as the waves get interfered with by different obstacles on the landscape and different features topographically and stuff. 
And then if animal's asleep in a tree, it's going to be boom, just slamming stable signal if you have a clear shot at it. Um, so you, you kind of get this real time experience with the animals, whereas tracking, you're always in the past. You know what I mean? You're a little bit behind what that animal is doing right now when you're following its tracks until you catch up to it, which, um, you know, is a very difficult thing to do, but it happens. And, um, but with telemetry, you have a, a total real time sense, you know, the beep is hitting you at the speed of light. <laughs> so you're getting, you're knowing exactly where that animal is. And sometimes, you know, I can sit on a road and watch them walk out right in front of me, you know, cause the, the I can tell from their signal, they're coming towards me and they're going to cross the road right in front or wherever, you know, like the other day I heard that this fisher was real, real strong signal. And I, I could tell she was moving on the ground cause it was fading in and out really quick, but she was really nearby. So I got out of the truck and just walked really quietly down the road. And then I could hear the birds alarming at her, you know, stellar shays alarm at fishers to alert each other of the danger that she presents to them and uh i snuck up and then i saw her just dump jump down into this little ditch and then all the birds started screaming and i I watched closely and snuck up until i was about 15 or 20 feet away and then she came up with a douglas squirrel in her mouth and had no idea i was there and i just got to watch her eat this squirrel right in front of me for a couple minutes and just that's an experience that's really, really difficult to get by tracking an animal on foot, especially a fisher in woods where there aren't snow because <laughs> uh, they're so light that, you know, you can imagine following a fisher through forest duff is pretty much impossible, <laughs> you know. So so that's something that's amazing about telemetry that I love is getting this real-time interaction with the animal Um and that, that's kind of been the most fascinating part for me is just getting to know these individuals so well. Um, and cause they're all different, you know, they all have different styles, <laughs> I guess, and patterns of behavior. Some of them like nice habitat and, you know, nice for me, like I, I can walk through it. I don't have to crawl. <laughs> and some of them I know, Oh, if I have to walk in on her, I'm going to bring the machete and get ready to crawl. <laughs> so neat neat yeah i i love what you the i i love how you describe telemetry as as uh in an art form almost um and that's definitely something that i could relate to i i spent a number of years uh doing radio telemetry work with california condors um and 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 you're right you get this sense i mean especially like we're tracking you know we were tracking california condors through these really these intricate uh, enormous canyon systems, you know, throughout Northern Arizona and Southern Utah. And yeah, you start to learn like, you know, like, Oh, that, that signal is bouncing off a cliff wall, or this is a direct line signal. And I mean, there, there are a lot of subtleties to just the sound of that little, that little blip. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the other thing that, that you pointed out that um, I can relate to is the fact that you get to know these animals as individuals, right? When you have that real time connection and when you're spending all of your day just kind of following them around, um, you know, sort of those individual differences start to become very apparent over time. Oh, yeah. And that's that's just the most beautiful thing about about all of this, about being a wildlife tracker, about being a biologist is is seeing that individuality and that personality in animals. And really, I mean, that's why I wanted to become a tracker and then later a biologist is I had some experiences that made me feel like, 
you know, animals have this personality and this world and this life that, you know, most people don't think that animals think or that they're conscious, you know, they think of them as like little robots running around in the woods. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's a, there's a, a sliding scale of how true that is, you know, an ant maybe kind of more on the robot side, but things like fishers and, and birds, uh, and mountain lions, you know, and deer, I think my experiences with these animals, which I've had a lot of are lead me to just be so sure that they are conscious interacting animals with, um, you know, feelings. I don't want to get too unscientific here, but, um, I know, you know, I remember the thing that really got me into it was I was 15 or 14 and there was a red-tailed hawk and nest in my backyard. And one day the babies, the nestlings fell out of the nest. I don't know how, but I just found them on the ground and they were totally not ready to fledge. Um, and then the Marine Humane Society came, I called them and they said, um, oh, well, if you touched them, the mother will smell your scent on them and they won't take care of them. And for whatever reason, I decided to ignore that, and I climbed back up the tree as high as I could and wedged this box in there, gave him some water and some food, and kept checking back on him every few days, and pretty soon the mother was bringing him snakes and rats. You know, I'd find squirrels in there that she'd brought to this box where the babies were, and uh, and then one day I was climbing down from checking on him, and I get to the ground, and I notice three feet from my face is the adult mother or father, I don't know which one, was sitting right on a branch at head level, three feet from my face, just looking at me. And I sat there with this hawk for, uh, you know, five or 10 minutes, just looking at it. And that was a special experience to me. And then I, I went back up into the house and uh, then came back out on the porch railing to where I had just been standing before. And uh, she had flown over and left took a rat out of the nest for her babies and brought it and put it on the porch railing right where I had been standing. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, everything that I've been taught about animals is wrong. <laughs> they, they deserve to have more empathy from us. And um, that's what I've loved about tracking too, is just getting to see the little quirks in an, in an animal's private life. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you're filming someone and they don't know they're being filmed, you know, you get to see all the funny little things they do. These animals, you know, they don't know that you're following their tracks that they left 24 hours ago. You get to see the places where they sat and rolled around in their bed and just beat up a sapling just because they were bored, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I, I love that story about the red-tailed hawk um, because it – it, it brings up this other point, right, about conservation, which and, and this other misconception that I think a lot of people have, and I think a lot of folks who consider themselves to be environmentalists have, which is that, you know, there is this separation um, between nature and humans. Um, and there is this, I think, uh, a lack of recognition that humans truly are a part of the natural world and of every ecosystem that we inhabit. Um, and, and that story that you told about the red-tailed hawk, I mean, that really illustrates that, right? Um, you yeah. have, you know, these folks from the Humane Society say, oh, if you touch it, you know, any, you know, any interaction at all means that, you know, uh, you've totally ruined the chances of these chicks <laughs> surviving, right? Or of the parent paying attention. And you're like, well, you think about it like, well, that doesn't really, that doesn't really make sense. Like these parents How have invested a lot of time and energy into raising these yeah. chicks and like, 
you know, I, I mean that that's specifically something that 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 I've heard a lot as well. Is like, you know, oh, you can't you can't interact at all with with like this particular species because, you know, you're you're, you're breaking down that wall that exists between humanity and nature. Like, no, yeah. that that wall doesn't really exist. Yeah, um, it clearly doesn't. I mean, that's funny because it, you know, people don't seem to care about that wall when it's about building a shopping center <laughs> happy to right. but when it ter- when it comes in uh in terms of you know interacting with an animal you know in in the sort of way that i'm talking about where you get to know them people think oh it's that's invading into the world of nature you know where it's <laughs> okay yeah if, if you're gonna take offense at that i mean there's probably bigger fish to fry <laughs> being invasive into wildlife you know of course you got to be very respectful um of animals in their space because it's no joke for them out there. You know, like a sprained ankle for us is no big deal, but that can be a death sentence for, for many wildlife. So for sure. And and there is sort of a fine line there between sort of going too far. Right. Um, you know, when I worked, you know, to, to use the example of my experience on the California condor project, you know, once again, of like, that was one of the struggles we had was trying to convince people um, at the south rim of the Grand Canyon not to feed the condors because that leads to this behavior that is actually really, you know, can be really harmful for um, individuals but also the population as a whole. Right. Um, so, you know, there, there is this line, right? And, I mean, at, at a certain point, you have to sort of figure out, like, where that boundary is. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think it's actually fairly intuitive, you know, I definitely had to do some exploring, you know, when I was, when I was getting into tracking and starting to figure out how I wanted to interact in the woods, you know, there were totally times where I I pushed an animal more times than I should have, you know, like spook it up from a bed because I trailed up on it, you know, and then, and then instead of, you know, just letting it go and be like, okay, that was my trail and that was a great day, you know, follow it again. And then, you know, there were I, there were times where I was like, "Oh man, I kind of feel bad," <laughs> you know, mm. or trying to get a picture. You know, if you get too close and you spook the animal, and everybody had to learn those lessons. You know, and now I feel you know pretty comfortable with with um, you know being comfortable with letting a, an experience go. You know, you don't have to push it to get the shot or push it to to see this thing. You know, because I've been in the woods, you know, for. 15 years or whatever. And I'm hoping to be there for like 50 more. So (laughs) there's going to be more chances. Um, but I think that that, the attitude that is conveyed about animals in our whole society is, um, detrimental to the way that people interact with them because it's, we really, really do not see them as equals in any way. (laughs) Um, that's just not the way our society relates to them. So I think oftentimes tourists, you know, whether or not they mean to, and just the general public kind of has this assumption where wildlife are either here for our consumption or our entertainment, <laughs> um, which, you know, I understand that, you know, but um, at the same time, how would you like it if I treated you like that? <laughs> <laughs> No, you're right. And if, if, if folks can find that, that level of respect um, that you're talking about, you know, uh, and, and they're able to sort of to feel that in the same way that you're describing, then then those decisions, you know, and that sort of fine line that we're discussing, it becomes a lot easier to, to, 
to find that that point right where you're going too far um and and where you're you're causing a disturbance for for yeah. that particular animal yeah um, I mean, it's intuitive to know how we treat people you know you you know where the line is of respect for people and disturbing them and it's no different with an animal you know yeah absolutely people don't always tell you when they're when you're making them uncomfortable you just have to be aware of it and the, i think the only difference is we uh we assume that you know animals don't have that same consciousness that humans do right yeah and it, you know it's like once you know the behaviors to look for i mean another example is we're um we're working on a video right now about um sea otters and disturbances uh caused uh by humans to groups of sea otters um and like pointing out specific behaviors right like the 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 biologists the folks who study sea otters and know about their behavior like they can look at an interaction between a person on a boat and a sea otter and they can understand based on the behavior of that otter like yeah that was some, you you know that human just caused a disturbance right. um, whereas the person in the boat like if you're not familiar if you don't understand if you're not paying close enough attention right to the behavior and using that intuition that you explain then you ha- have no awareness of the fact that you just caused a disturbance and, and and maybe had a negative impact on on that individual and on the population as a whole absolutely yeah and people also just tend to think that it's not a big deal disturbing an animal for you know 15 minutes even if you just get too close to it but um you know that's because we live these cushy lives where our food comes on a plate out of the fridge um and for animals you know five minutes of rest time or foraging time lost is a real energy loss and it has to be made up for and um yeah, and it can be the difference between survival and not surviving for that Absolutely. particular animal. I mean, you you never know, right? Yeah. Um, so I I want to jump into uh, some of the conservation threats faced by Pacific fishers. Um, you mentioned right up front um, this issue of logging, um, and that that's one of the reasons why the Hoopa tribe uh, has this interest in in studying the Pacific fisher and learning more about it, and learning about how you know sort of the impacts that that um, different logging activities have on the population. Um, but I mean, what else is there? I mean, sort of break down uh, uh, the sort of uh, conservation status of of this species. How are they doing, and and what threats are facing the population? Cool. So the we just had um, protection go for the um, Southern Sierra population. There's a disjunct population of fishers in the Southern Sierra that um, is much more threatened. And they are, you know, they, they had habitat loss from all the logging down there. And they fishers need old growth trees to den in because they need to have a cavity basically in a tree. And you can't find those structures on you know, stands of 20-year-old homogenous dug fur timber sales, you know. So that's one conservation threat. Um, another one is just predation, which um, is not, there's nothing we can do about that. It's part of nature, and that's, you know, they feed bobcats and mountain lions. That's the main source of mortality for our fishers in Hoopa is bobcat and mountain lion predation. And uh, bobcats prey on the females because they're so much smaller, but the male fishers seem to be too big for bobcats to predate. So we it's we haven't had a male get killed by a bobcat, but they do get killed by mountain lions very often. So um, that's one thing, predation, and you know, just circle of life. But um, the major threat right now that is completely preventable and is just a shame is um, 
illegal marijuana grow operations and the poisons that they put on the landscape in order to keep pests out of their campsites. And this has been like a growing issue that, um, you know, colleagues of mine at the Hoopa tribe and then at the integral ecology research center have been looking into for years. And, um, but we have been finding that fishers are getting poisoned by anticoagulant rodenticides and other toxins like uh, carbofurin that are put out at these weed grows to keep pests away. Um, and actually that accounts for 30% of the mortalities in our fishers, which is a huge number. And this, I mean, I can't stress enough how much of an epidemic this is in especially California. Um, you know, almost every mountain lion that gets tested for these chemicals is positive. Um, most of our fishers have been exposed, um, and some of them were fatally exposed. You know, because you can get exposed and, and live, but it definitely damages you because um, it's you know they're anticoagulants or neurotoxins, and and these things are just pernicious, pernicious chemicals that are super. Um, they're really good at persisting on the landscape and basically a fisher eats this rodenticide, right? And then that gets eaten by a mountain lion and this mountain lion is going to be exposed through that fisher, or it could be even longer scale than that. You know, a rat eats the rodenticide, then the fisher eats the rat and the mountain lion eats the fisher. And all of that is a chain of animals who are experiencing real fitness detriments from these toxins, just clarify here. I mean, these are these are illegal marijuana grow sites, right? So, I mean, part of the issue here, I would imagine, is that because these are already illegal activities, the folks who are operating these marijuana grow sites aren't going to care at all about existing regulations about, you know, types of rodenticides to use and the amount that they're allowed to use. Um, I mean, is that sort of uh, uh, complicating this, the fact that, you know, like existing regulations are basically, you know, meaningless? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, that That's totally true. And, you know, they don't care at all. They have no respect for the land or and for the um, for the wildlife there. And I'm not trying to label every marijuana grower out there because there are some of them who, um, you know, try to do it right on their own properties. But these trespass grows that are on public land, national forest land, for the most part, these guys do not care about the impact on the land. And they're using toxins that are completely illegal in the United States, you know, or using ones that are legal in ways that are not legal. <laughs> so, I mean, and rodent, that's kind of the, the, the problem that we have here is these trespass grows where they'll be growing, you know, up to 20,000 plants and have a ton of toxins out there. And this stuff is absolutely completely lethal to humans too. Some of these neurotoxins that they put out there. Um, and that's one side of the problem. But then on a bigger scale, rodenticide on the planet is a massive problem. You know, fishers and mountain lions, this is not restricted to California or even the U S rodenticide all over the world. Cause you know, kind of in the fifties, people just got used to being like, Oh, if you got a rat, just throw out a ton of this poison, you know, and who cares <laughs> you know, uh, what happens to it. And so that's kind of a global epidemic, but, um, it's really, really bad in these national forests. Like, these are our public lands that are being protected to be wild and are 
protected to be a habitat for wildlife for, you know, people to go and enjoy them too. And for the wildlife to exist there themselves and for people to, to hunt there. And, you know, deer are being exposed to this stuff, deer that hunters are eating, you know? Um, so it's, it's pretty massive problem, you know, and personally from a field biologist perspective of working in these conditions, it's, it's rather dangerous. Um, cause these guys guard these operations with guns. Um, you know, I've been held up and robbed and multiple times by these people's had pretty horrible interactions with them, you know, and running away from, from guns and, uh, other people I know have been, you know, nearly killed bullets whizzing past their head, um, running away from these. And it's, it's not, you know, uncommon. We have to be very careful with where we go into, you know, and you're always looking for sign of weed grows and, you know, frankly, I'm sick of it. It's it's really frustrating to have this kind of this knowledge that in the none, the woods aren't safe. You know, I'm not scared of bears. I'm not scared of mountain lions. Any of these things, but I'm terrified of these guys out there with their guns and their poisons because uh, they've got everything to lose. And uh, you know, a lot of them are in the country illegally too. So you know, they're gonna shoot to kill just to protect themselves and. It's killing, it's killing the landscape, it's killing the wildlife and, you know, putting field workers and outdoor enthusiasts in, uh, in total danger. I mean, it sounds like you've had direct interactions, uh, with, with yeah. folks at grow sites. I mean, is, yeah. is there like one particular instance, maybe you could share a story with us? Sure. Um, yeah, I stumbled, I stumbled, I mean, there's been a bunch of, a bunch of, um, near misses, you know, hiding from people. And, um, and Hoopa, I haven't had anything too bad. Um, I haven't actually come across much at all, but cause there is a reservation and there tends to be less grows there. Although we did just find and eradicate, uh, 12,000 plant grow, I think two weeks ago. But, um, yeah, once when I was down in Mendocino national forest, um, I didn't see any sign or anything, of a grow, but then I just, next thing I know, there's someone shouting, um, at me in a language I didn't understand pointing a gun at me, looked like a AK 47 type thing to me and, uh, yelling at me, take all my stuff, you know, kind of hitting me and they lead me back to their camp and, um, tie me up and talk, 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 talk to each other in a language I don't understand. And then, uh, basically decided to, try and knock me out and then drive me back and drop me off in town. Um, so I just kind of went along with it, pretended to be knocked out. I was glad they didn't kill me. So it's, it's a crazy experience. And it, I mean, it's almost, uh, it's almost hard to believe that somebody could have an ex- such a traumatic experience like that. Just like you said, in our public lands, these, these forests that, that are owned by, by all of us. Right. And, you know, I, there are other people who have had far worse experiences, you know, <laughs> so yeah. it, it's not even that uncommon. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff I don't tell my parents about. I <laughs> <laughs> have worse. to make sure they don't listen to this podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, what's being done to, to, to try to fix this problem? I mean, are, are you sort of as a Pacific fisher biologist playing a role in trying to help solve this, this problem? Definitely. I mean, that, 
the highest priority in my job is um, getting to a fissure as soon as it dies um, because we need to be able to test that carcass to um, see if it was exposed to rodenticide and basically just amass this data set because basically what we need is to get the data to show people the uh, you know the size of this problem. So that's the most important thing for me. That's what I'm always worried about. You know, what else I what else I do is you know um, triangulate them to get data for habitat use and home range size. But um, what's more important than all of that is getting data on mortality factors, and um, you have to get to them real quick to be able to test the carcass, especially this time of year. It's you know ninety or hundred degrees up in Hoopa, and stuff decays really quickly. But um, other biologists are doing more direct work with the weed grows, like my boss, Mark Higley, and um, some other folks from the IERC are um, working to more directly like eradicate weed grows. The, the role that you're sort of actively playing right now to try to address um, this big picture conservation issue is, you know, playing your role as scientist, collecting the data that proves how significant of a problem this is, right? But, I mean, in addition to that, I know that you've been uh, uh, chatting with with our producer, Sean, about potentially starting to work with us and, and starting to uh, capture a little bit of footage and thinking about ways to sort of uh, tell this story about what's going on, both with fishers, but also about this this threat that the fisher population faces from uh, rodenticide use and illegal marijuana grow operations. For me personally, like I started off as a biologist and then uh, sort of slowly transitioned into more of a, a filmmaker, which, you know, in my mind is sort of like the outreach and education side to conservation rather than like the sort of science and data collection side to conservation. Um, yeah. And obviously they're both important, but like, you know, I, I, I guess I'm sort of wondering, you know, uh, where you're at on that spectrum and, you know, what made you maybe start thinking about sort of that outreach and education side and the importance of that? Well, you know, like you said, they're both important, but, um, to me personally, outreach is way more important than science, you know, because we can collect all this data and if it just sits on a hard drive somewhere, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't work for anything and nothing changes. And even if it gets published in a scientific journal, who reads those? You know, scientists, right? And they probably already care about this stuff. And we don't, what we need to do is not preach to the choir. You know, what I want to do is make this issue and all conservation issues known to the public because, you know, they're the ones who need to hear about these things. And I think the vast majority of people would be absolutely outraged and up in arms if they knew the proportions of this um, this epidemic of illegal marijuana grows and toxins on the landscape. You know, I think people would just be completely outraged and um but most of them don't know. You know, even in people where I live in Arcata, it's like where I live, there's advertise every advertisement on the radio is selling greenhouses and fertilizer. All of it's for weed grow. You know, it's a huge part of the culture up there. But even in there, hardly anyone knows about the drastic ecological effects that these girls are having. And you know, I'm sure people in Idaho have just never even heard of it. <laughs> so it, people need to know that this is happening. And 
it's way more important to me to get this word out, you know, and I do enjoy contributing to the science side of it. And, um, you know, for me, I've always just loved being out in the woods alone. So being a biologist gives me that, which is just a, a personal satisfaction for me, you know, and if I can do good with conservation while getting that for myself, great, you know, that's a good deal. But in terms of, um, you know, saving the world as it were, I would, uh, you know, I want to get into public outreach and education more. And that's where I see my career going, um, in the hopefully not too distant future. Cause, um, I think there is all, all these issues about conservation and stuff. It's kind of like we can keep protecting this stuff, uh, and we can keep cleaning up after the, the destruction of industrialized civilization, uh, or we can kind of turn around the ship, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I would like to start changing people's attitudes and working, working more towards, um, preventing this destruction of our natural resources rather than trying to clean it up after it's already done. <laughs> and by doing that, by educating people and giving them a connection with nature, you know, people are segregated from nature. We don't get to experience it and then they're scared of it, you know. They're terrified to go out in the woods because of bears and mountain lions because they're portrayed as these horrible, horrible, like, monsters that are bloodthirsty. And even if you, you know, are a woodsy person still, who are like, oh, I don't go out with, without my gun because mountain lions, you know. And I'll tell you, I've walked into hundreds of mountain lion kills where the mountain lion is at the kill, you know, where it killed a deer and it's sitting there feeding on it. And every time I wanted to see them, so I was quiet, did the wind right, you know, tried to be sneaky. And I think I saw them maybe five or ten times. <laughs> and because they run, they hear you coming and they go away. And I've walked up on mothers with their kittens, you know, and which most people think, you know, that's like a death sentence. If you see a mountain lion and her kittens, you're dead. Not the case at all. They run away. They are terrified of us. You know, they're like a house cat. They want to watch you and see if you're a threat. And if they think you're a threat, you will not even know that they are there. And we are a threat, you know. So that's kind of, you know, people just don't get a chance to find something that they personally value in nature. And I feel like a lot of the conservation movement has been almost from a negative standpoint, like, oh, stop destroying this, you know, stop destroying that, start saving the whales. You know, and I would say, like, we need to start letting people get a glimpse of the world so they can, of the natural world, so they can find something that they personally value in it. You know, it's, it needs to be something that they have a personal connection with and they are personally invested in preserving. And um, the way that schools are taught, you know, Kids don't ever get out to see nature. They don't even know. You don't learn the names of any trees or any animals in school. Um, and it's just a separation that, you know, you have to be a freak, basically, to, to go out in nature and find something you connect with there. It's, it's not part of our popular culture. And to me, it's no surprise that uh, the vast majority of people haven't been very invested in conservation. Because there's no reason for them to be, because <laughs> they haven't been out in the woods, haven't fallen in love with it. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the 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 absolute number one step, and I mean, this is the same thing, same process that we go through with every one of the the video projects we work on. Is the very first thing you have to do is you have to 
convince people that they should care. You know, why yes. do I care about this species? Why do I care about this issue? Um, you have to, you have to fall in love with a species in order to care about it. Um, and that's, that's not an easy task, right? Especially if you're talking to people who have, you know, uh, been raised without those connections to the natural world. Um, but it's a really important task. Like you said, you know, I mean, we have to sort of start slowly turning this, this, this ship around and in the right direction, right? If we're going to sort of prevent some of the really negative impacts that, that are projected for the near future. So I, Absolutely. And that's, you know, to tie it back to tracking for a second, um, that's kind of why I love sharing tracking so much because it is something that our brain is so evolved to do. You know, we are built for it. So you, you really key on key in on it really quickly and you get this, um, the learning curve is just super quick. You know, you get really good real quick. And I've seen people who have never been out tracking before and come out for a, a, a day with me and I just, you see them light up, you know, and they see this part of their brain turn on. Cause I think that a lot of the reason that humans evolved the intelligent dynamic brains that we have is because to be able to track, if say we're on the African savanna, you know, okay, here's a lion track and it's dragging a, a deer, you know, and you say, okay, well this beetle's track is underneath it. And that beetle is only out at night and there's none of that beetle's tracks on top of it. So that's from this morning. So that's a fresh kill and we can go and scavenge that. You know what I mean? That would be incredibly adaptive, but that takes some, some serious gears turning, you know? So I think that there is some real selective pressure for humans to evolve this stuff. And with that said, you know, it is incredibly satisfying to use this part of your brain, you know? And I've, when I take people on a trail, like following a mountain lion, like they're like kids in a candy shop, you know, they are just engaged. And this isn't kids I'm talking about. This is adults, you know, who are set in their ways and want to be computer programmers or whatever. And, um, I think it's this it's a tool to give you a just a one-on-one connection with nature that is just unquestionably personally yours, you know, and it it's that's what it's done for me, you know. You get to go out and you get to know this bobcat at this one spot where no one else goes tracking, you know, and it's like you're the person with that connection. And um I just feel really grateful to have been able to share that with with some other people and to have gotten that shared with me cuz um yeah, it's like it was a hole in my life, you know, before that. And I think it's a great education tool to to get people invested in wildlife. And also it's just cool, you know. <laughs> it sounds like, like speed tracker, you know. <laughs> You're right, and I love that. I mean, I, I, I love the connection to sort of, you know, our, our evolutionary history as a species and how this this action sort of, I mean, it's it uh, you found this one specific aspect of sort of that connection that we have with the natural world to sort of tap into and to like develop that connection. And it's, I mean, the, the fact that there is this sort of tie into the evolutionary history of our species, like adds a whole new element to it. So super, super fascinating stuff. Um, yeah. Phil, it's, it's been it's been a lot of fun chatting with you about all this stuff. Um, I, I think um, I'm super excited that we were able to have this this talk, um, and I'm really excited about sort of the potential for uh, a, a collaboration uh, down the road on this video we're working on about the Pacific Fisher. Um, man, I think we need to make a video about um, wildlife tracking and, and the connections between wildlife tracking and, and biology and, and, and field research. 
I would love to. That sounds great. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, um, yeah. Thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, really fantastic conversation. We'll we'll be in touch. We'll be chatting about some some of these ideas for collaboration down the road. Sounds great, Matt. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. All right. That was our conversation with Phil Johnston, wildlife tracker and Pacific fisher biologist. I love Phil's perspective on wildlife conservation and the need for humans to establish a connection with the natural world. He is clearly aligned with many of the strongly held beliefs that we have here at Wild Lens about how to best approach difficult conservation threats, and we couldn't be happier to have him on as a collaborator. If you'd like to learn more about the research project that Phil is working on with the Pacific Fisher in the Hoopa Reservation in Northern California, we'll have all that information up on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC80. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. <laughs>